So I hope you've turned your phones, your iPads, your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And, uh, you know, something that's really been on my mind this week that uh, it actually came because I was watching a David Jeremiah sermon. Uh, he's one of my favorites. He really is an amazing Bible teacher, as there are many others who are, but he's especially uh, incredible. And they kept moving the cameras over the audience, which is huge, thousands and thousands of people. And what I noticed was is that a large majority of them were taking notes on his sermon. As someone has said that what we write down, we remember better than what we just hear. And so I just urge you to, your Bible should look like somebody attacked it <laughs> by the time you get through a year of teaching. Uh, as you write notes and make think, I'm going to look up this verse or that verse. And uh, when I am sitting where you are, I have my iPad, and I always have a Bible program up along with a writing program, and I've got hundreds of pages of uh, written stuff that other people have said in sermons that have ended up without credit in my sermons. And so it's just, uh, I just urge you to uh, write down uh, what you're hearing and what you're thinking about. This is, I learned this from a good friend who's in heaven now. He said, you need, when you're listening to anybody speak about anything, but especially in church, you should write down what you're thinking because of what they said. Because that's probably what God is trying to say to you. And so uh, I urge you to consider doing that. Now, last week, the sermon this week is how to live life to the glory of God. Uh, but last week, it was about freedom. And that's a big deal in this sermon, too, and you'll see why in just a moment. So I'm going to start out where I left off last week because I'm so moved by this passage in the Message Bible. It's in the Message, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 to 15. You already heard it last week at the end of the sermon. Here it is again. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's Word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? Powerful, a basic paraphrase of that part of the chapter in the book of Galatians. Now, <clears throat> chapter 8, 9, and 10, and chapter 11, verse 1 is of a piece and must be combined to understand the real problem Paul is addressing to the Corinthians. He's not in Corinth. He was there for a year and a half, but he's, there's letters going back and forth, and we don't have all that was written to him. So as I've said every time, we are hearing only one side of the conversation, so it's our, my task to work hard at trying to understand what the other side is so we can understand why Paul is saying what he was saying. Paul spoke in chapter 8 about the problem of attending the cultic meetings around the temple while eating meat sacrificed to idols. Some Christians in Corinth, who had formerly been part of this idolatry, were being led astray by others in the church who thought there was no 
problem eating such meat because they understood that there are no other small g gods, just these man-made idols. They had a lot to learn. And that group had a saying. And the saying they had is, all things are permissible. And Paul uses that against their thinking, as we'll see near the end of the sermon. They were also saying that since they were baptized and since they participated in the communion or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, they could now do whatever they wanted and God would be pleased with them. They were presuming on God's grace. Now, last week, we ended with a picture of the Christian life as a race. So now Paul makes it clear that we are all in the same race that our spiritual ancestors ran, and and using the Old Testament, Paul warns this permissible group of the dangers our ancestors ran into so long ago. For instance, this is a mind-bender. Only Joshua and Caleb made it through the Red Sea and the wilderness wanderings into the Promised Land. There were hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions, who didn't make it in. And so we need to find out why that was. So 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Paul is saying to those back in Corinth, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea and that they were all baptized into Moses uh, in the cloud and in the sea. Now, here's what that's all about. Uh, First, there was a cloud when they got released from Pharaoh in Egypt into the Passover. There was a cloud that followed them in the daytime, kept the sun from burning them up in the desert. And in the nighttime, it was, a, it was fire. It was like, sort of like a nightlight uh, at uh, night for them to sleep in peace. And uh, all of them passed through the sea. So the first part is God's guidance. God guided them all through uh, that happening and past the Red Sea, and they all went through the sea, and the sea opened up dry ground. They went across on dry ground, closed up on Pharaoh and his army, and that was God who did that, but Moses was the leader. That's why it says they were all baptized into Moses. In other words, they identified Moses as the leader. They saw him as the leader. They saw him as a man of God, and they all wanted to follow him, knowing that in following him, they were following God. And so Paul is drawing a parallel between the experience of the Exodus and our experience as Christians, especially as we deal with baptism and communion. So part of the sermon is an instruction of what communion is all about. So they identified with Moses by going through the water. We are identified into Christ when we become Christians. Now, let's talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some are thinking, oh, this is going to be, this is great. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, what's that? That's becoming a Christian. It actually says that in the Bible. We uh, We make sometimes the wrong kind of deal out of this. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul has writes, for we were all, every Christian, baptized by the one Spirit, the word baptismo, baptism, 
uh, means to be placed into. So he says, when you became a Christian, we were all placed into, baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, that's the church, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't make any difference what ethnicity we have, whether we're slave or free, it doesn't make any difference where we stand in society strata, and we were all given the one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to drink, to drink, to satisfy us, to change us. And so it's a, the baptism of the Spirit initially shows us that everybody has the Holy Spirit, every single person, and the Holy Spirit places us in the body of Christ, and we're all one in that body of Christ where it's a whole new family, and we're able to be led now by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and we'll talk about that in a moment more. And near the end of his life, 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he says, For there is one God... And one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ, that's the word for Messiah, and his name is Jesus. So here's the contrast. Moses was their mediator between them and God. Jesus is our mediator between us and God. And then if you look in your Bibles again, and do look at verse 3 and 4, uh, Paul says, they, the ones in the desert now, the Exodus, all, no exceptions, ate the same spiritual food. Now, what was that? That was incredible. That was the manna coming down. They had enough every day to eat and only enough and not too little and not too much. And so it was there every day. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to go out and gather it. And it came from God. And then it says they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock which accompanied them and that rock was the Messiah, was Christ, was Jesus. So Moses produced water from a rock for the people. The symbol of a rock is common for the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. The idea is that Jesus was present with them during their time in the desert. The rock symbolizes the presence of Jesus and his quenching of their spiritual thirst. Well, actually, the water is a picture of their thirst, and, and a picture of the quenching of that thirst. Now, there was a legend that everybody in Paul's day knew that was written down in Jewish lore uh, that the rock followed them all of the days in the desert. Well, however true that may or may not be, there's no question that they had all they needed to eat manna and all they needed to drink water. It started from the rock, and that was supplied them just like the manna was. So... Verse 5, nevertheless, now this is an amazing sentence, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That simply means they, they all died except for two in the wilderness. Do you see the point Paul is making toward those in Corinth who thought that because they were baptized and took communion that they could do whatever they wanted regardless of how it affected others? Paul is saying to them, you better be careful or you might suffer terrible consequences for your presumption in God's grace. Now look at verse 6 because this tells us why we're even doing this this morning. Verse 6. Now, these things occurred, Paul is saying to them, but saying to us now, as examples to keep us, 
from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. This is crucially important. If we do not know the Old Testament, we are greatly disadvantaged as Christians. We live in a day where history is being revised rather than learned to enhance our understanding. And it's a true statement that if we don't learn from the past, we are condemned to relive it. It is not possible to live a successful Christian life without an intimate, growing knowledge of both the Hebrew and Greek scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Put half the Bible on the shelf and our effectiveness as Christians will soon diminish. And so he hits areas of problems in Corinth, and we'll see how they relate to us. Verse 7, idolatry. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, as it is written in the book of Exodus, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Now, he didn't have to explain that. Everybody knew exactly what he was talking to, but that's one of the most disturbing stories in the Old Testament. It, Moses and Joshua are going up on the mountain. Uh, Joshua stops at a certain point, and Moses goes ahead because God's going to give him the Ten Commandments. In the meantime, the people who have, Moses says, I'm going up here, I'll be coming back down again. Uh, we don't know how long it took him, but the people were upset that he was gone for however long he was gone. And so they got really upset, and they got on Aaron's case and said, we need some gods to follow. This Moses guy, what do we know about him? He's gone. And you're just thinking, you've got to be kidding. And they were really upset. So Aaron uh, really exhorted them. No, he didn't. He got all of their gold earrings and made a calf, idol, and set it someplace, and then made an altar uh, so that you could give uh, sacrifices to the calf idol. I mean, that's just hard to believe. Uh, and so that's the story that, that is being talked about here. It's idolatry. And in Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, it says, so the next day... The people rose early. The next day after they made the calf and that he set it all up, Aaron did, and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings to a calf. And afterwards, it says they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And if you want to know what revelry was, the word orgy is in that. So here's a question to start with. What is idol worship? What is idol worship? Well, it's blind or excessive devotion to something. Barclay wrote this. We do not now worship idols so blatantly. And I'll just insert here. So sometime we hear a sermon like this, well, I would never bow down to a calf. But if the God, small g, which people look to, is that to which they give all their time and thought and energy... Men and women still worship, he's talking about Christian men and women, men and women still worship the works of their own hands more than they worship God. You see, the first commandment was we're not to have any other gods, period. And God gave us all things to enjoy, not to worship. It's a blessing to build a nice home, but it's a curse if the home is more important than God. It's a blessing to drive a new car, to be excellent in a skill or a athletic endeavor or academic pursuit. But it's a curse if our job or our sport or our intellect takes precedent 
over worshiping, over living for the God who created all that exists. That's what we're learning on Wednesday nights now. So here, here's a question for all of us this morning. What are we devoted to? What are we most devoted to? That's an important question to answer. Well, now he takes on another problem, verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. That's a huge number. Now, there were many of them, but still, it's a huge number. It's out of Numbers chapter 25. Now, you might make a little note, read Numbers chapter 25 later. It, the sexual morality was the men having sex with the Moabite women, which were, they were forbidden to do, and they got so caught up with these women that the women, uh, they had idols, and so uh, the uh, Jewish men started, uh, in the Exodus, started worshiping the idols of the women that they were having sex with, and the result was a plague came from God, and thousands and thousands of them died. Now, the, the story in Numbers is quite shocking and might seem severe to our politically correct ears today. But God did not make us to act like animals using God's gift of sex as some kind of plaything. That kind of activity will ruin our lives and lead us into idolatry. As someone has said about idolatry, it's an obsession, a lust for that which God forbids. The reason there was sexual immorality is that the Israelites were driven by their lust rather than directed by God's love. And then there's another part, testing the Lord. This is another problem, verse 9. We should not test the Lord as some of them did. And we're killed by snakes. Write down in your Bible, Numbers 21, read the story. It's an amazing story because it has a huge impact on the gospel. And so what happened is they were testing the Lord, complaining about things and, and all of that type of stuff and, and about their leadership. And so these venomous snakes came in their midst and they started to die. And so what happened was they came to Moses and they said, we're so we're sorry, what do we do? We didn't, we didn't expect this. How do we repent? What do we do? And Moses went to God and says, what do we do? And he says, take a stick, long stick, Make a bronze snake and put it on the top of the stick. And all you have to do is hold it up and tell them anyone who looks to the snake. Now, they were thinking looking to the snake means I, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I repent. Look at the snake and then they won't die. That's all you have to do. And you think, well, that's kind of silly. Well, Jesus used that to show us the gospel. And in John chapter 3 in the story of Nicodemus, uh, Jesus himself said, in John 3, 14 and 15, he says, just as Moses, this is Jesus speaking, lifted up the snake in the desert, so I must be lifted up. The Son of Man is Jesus' self-designation. He's claiming deity every time he says it. So I must be lifted up that everyone who believes in me may have eternal life. And then the next sentence after that, we all know, we don't have to write it down anymore. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, were to look to Jesus the same way they did in the snake in the wilderness. So we see the gospel all through the Old Testament. And then the next problem is one that um, <clears throat> my wife's first husband has a problem with. 
And do not grumble. <laughs> Even the word in English and in Greek, grumble, grumble, as some of them did. And were killed by the destroying angel. Wow, this is really something. It's from the book of Numbers again. What we are seeing here is a picture of our sinful tendencies and temptations. Someone has said there are many who live life with a wine and not with a cheer. If we truly understand the gospel, an attitude of thankfulness should rise up in our lives. The story is in Numbers chapter 14. Uh, I'll use two verses, verse 2 and verse 37. Uh, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, these God-anointed leaders. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. And as soon as I read that, I said, you've got to be kidding. Have you forgotten already that you were slaves in Egypt? Have you forgotten you had no freedom? Have you forgotten you had no future in Egypt, that you were building things for other people? What is wrong with you? Or, well, they even went farther. Or if we had died in this desert. But God has supplied everything. You've had everything you need to eat, water, everything. And you've been freed from them. And God, is, God has you in the desert to test you and to grow you and to help you. You know, we try, all of us. When we get into desert circumstances, what's the first thing? How do I get out of this? You know, I'm going on YouTube. I'm going to find some preacher who will tell me how to get out of it before the sermon's over. But sometimes the desert experience is there, even probably most times it's there, to grow us up. And they said, oh, we had to die in the desert. And it goes on to say these men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, it was discouraging everybody, were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. I know. Why did he do this? Such severe things. Because he was bringing up a people so that we could be saved. So the Messiah could come. Now look at verse 11. These things happened to them, Corinthians, Calvary chaplains, as examples. And were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. They saw, uh, they understood from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the creation on, that it was all one link story that's going to come to a good end. And we're in that good end time, believe it or not. We're in that latter time where the Messiah has come and we're waiting for Jesus to come again. So this is one of the gems that Paul wrote down that we must know by heart. Verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The Christian life is a life Paul analogizes by using pictures of athletes in a race or soldiers in a war. And we talked about this a lot. We're in a spiritual war, a spiritual war. We have to recognize that. We do have a strong spiritual enemy. And if we do not take proper precaution, if we do not know the Scriptures and how all those who came before us lived, then we'll fail. Now, there are some in Corinth who actually thought they were beyond failing. It sometimes shocks me when I think of all those I have known who have fallen by the wayside since I became a Christian. I have a VCR, a, 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 what do you call that, the, the thing you plug... 
VHS. Is that it? Anyhow, I have a one that you plug in. I can't plug it in anymore because there are no more plugins <laughs> for those. It's of a sermon preached in this church almost 35 years ago, just after we started the church. We were now meeting in the Catholic school, and Dr. Bill McRae, who was my mentor and eventually was even the president of the seminary I went to, Dr. Bill McRae come to speak. He's just turned 90 years old uh, a month ago, and I was able to, able to be part of all that online and everything. It was just an amazing thing. He's uh, doing well still at 90 years old. But he was there, one of the best preachers I've ever heard in my life, and he really he, he, he taught me so much. So I was so excited. And he came and he taught on the uh, chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, and it was on the putting on the armor of God. And he started out by saying that we need to know the devil's schemes. And he said, the devil knows you probably better than you know you, but you know you pretty well. So he said, everybody here, there were, I don't know how many of us, not very many, 50 or something. He says, uh, he said, what I want you to do is to think about if you were the devil and know all you know about you, what would be your scheme to make you fall to walk away from everything? And he, he went on a little bit about it, and it was very real, and you were thinking about it. And then, as the sermon went on, uh, Dr. McClay warned us by saying that some among us that day, so long ago, would end up divorced, and others would fall away from commitment to Jesus if we didn't put on our armor and recognize the spiritual battle we are in. And then as the camera scanned the audience, and I saw this video the last time maybe... 20, 25 years ago, uh, as the camera scanned the audience, I was amazed and saddened at how true that statement was that so many have fallen. But it doesn't have to be that way. History need not repeat itself. Paul always puts hope into his tough messages. And verse 13 is absolutely required memory work for every Christian. And it's, you should know every word of it and what it's all about. Chapter 10, verse 13, 1, 10, verse 13. No temptation, Paul says, or trial, same word, has overtaken you, us, except what is common to everyone. And God is faithful. That should be stamped on our forehead. Let's say it together. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Every temptation comes through his hand, one way or another. Nothing touches us that he's not going to turn to our good and his glory. But when you are tempted, and you will be tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Now, it's not sinful to be tempted, and trials are often used to strengthen us. That is why Paul used the imagery of a runner we saw last week, which taught us that we need to be disciplined or else. James, Jesus' half-brother, chapter 1, verse 12, writes this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. The word blessed, makarios, in the Greek language, some people say it means happy, and that's in it, no question. But it really means blessed by God. Blessed by God is the one, the Christian, who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive a reward, a crown of life, 
that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And we talked about this last week. Those who love him is a definition of a Christian. A Christian is one who loves God. Even Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself, and Jesus used the promises of the word of God. He used the Old Testament to fight off the temptations. There is never any valid reason to give into temptation. We will always be delivered in it, and we will always be able to make it through. Actually, the Greek language here pictures a victory over the trial, not just an escape, but a victory over the trial. No one can say their temptation or trial is unique to them. Even Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. The writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus is our high priest, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he, Jesus, did not sin. And I've taught us, especially from Romans 6, and uh, 5 and 6, but 6, you don't have to sin. We don't have to sin. We're free not to sin. I'm not saying we never will sin. If we do sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But we don't have to sin. We now have the ability with the Holy Spirit within us to resist all uh, sin. And in Hebrews chapter 2, for instance, verse 18, it says, because he, that's Jesus himself, suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The key phrase we repeated in verse 13 is God is faithful. Paul's desire is that those in the Corinthian church survive the sex-saturated, idolatrous, materialistic world of Corinth. And I can say that's my desire for all of us. We're really no different, are we? I intend to finish my race and receive the prize, and that's what I want for everyone here. So now Paul handles the problem of some of those in the Corinthian church still going into the pagan temples and eating the sacrificial meat and participating in the ceremony. Paul uses the analogy of our communion service. When we partake of the communion elements, we're doing so in fellowship, that's the word koinonia, with one another and with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a command that we partake of the communion together. As a matter of fact, if there's one service that everybody must be at, it's the communion service. We need to be present and be part of it. Therefore, to participate in the pagan temple was to be in danger of being in fellowship with the demons behind the idols that the meat has been sacrificed to. And so verse 14 is a total change of mood. Paul has had all kinds of moods going through these things that we've talked about, but here you can see a tear in his eye. And he's saying to his amanuensis who's taken all this down, write it this way. Therefore, my dear friends... Flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. I lived among you for a year and a half. Every day I taught. Judge for yourselves what I say. And Paul is clearly telling the Corinthians to stay out of the temples that led so many of them astray in the past. All the temple in Corinth was the weekend destination. 
There were women who were available sexually. There was great food, lots of wine to drink. If you wanted to have a good time on the weekend in Corinth, you went to the temple. Everybody does it. But those in the church have been saved from that lifestyle. In the end, it's a path that leads to destruction. It is only a place to fulfill the temporal lusts of life. The real problem was what was behind the good time. Idol worship, sex, demons. When being with and getting along with those in the world, in their case, the temple, because everybody went there. So when being with and getting along with those in the world becomes more important than being with and getting along with those in the Christian community, we're in danger of committing idolatry. We're not far from abandoning the church gathered. We're becoming YouTube Christians. Now, Paul clearly outlines why he is so strong in his warning. Verse 16, this is just teaching us about communion, maybe more than you already know. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. He's talking about our communion service. Uh, Participation, that's what it says in my Bible translation. The, The underlying word is koinonia, or the word for fellowship. So he's saying, is it not, meaning it is, is it not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a fellowship, a koinonia in the blood of Christ? It's us having this fellowship, this relationship with Jesus. And it's not the bread that we break, a koinonia, same word, in the body of Christ. That means we have fellowship with one another. That's how important communion is. Because there is one loaf... And we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. I did a communion service once, and I probably should do it this way more often, where I had a big loaf of bread, and we all took a piece of the loaf. And the idea was that if everybody took a piece of the loaf, uh, now we're the loaf in 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 a metaphor. You understand that. But we're the communion. We're the body of Christ. We're all one. We're all needed. Every piece is necessary for the loaf to be complete. Jesus himself instigated the communion celebration before he went to the cross. The wine he offered and the bread they shared was to be symbolic of his imminent death, and we are to carry on this memorial of fellowship until he returns. Here at our church, we offer communion once a month on Wednesdays and once a quarter on Sundays. It's a time of remembering to never forget the cost of our salvation. But Paul's main point is how this act of communion unites us together in purpose and memory as a specific group of people who worship Jesus Christ as Lord. So how, after celebrating the death of Christ, could we live in any way that betrays our commitment to our Lord, whose name is Jesus? So verse 18, Paul says, consider the people of Israel. So think about the Jewish people. Do not those at the temple who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then, I think you'll get it here now, that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? So if you sacrifice at the temple, God's temple, God's sacrifice, whatever you sacrifice, you participate in. And, of course, it's different 
It's the, same, it's the same thing in the pagan temple. So Paul wants to say, now, so therefore, there's nothing wrong with the food, right? It's not like poisoned or something. So do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? Verse 20, no. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you Christians to be participants in koinonia with demons. In other words, idols are nothing, but demons are powerful. In Judaism, sacrifices were outward expressions of an inward commitment to the living God. Our communion service is a visible expression of our inward salvation. In the same way, the pagan sacrifices are a picture of an inward commitment to demons, even if those doing it don't realize it. And so Paul says, you can't live a divided life. It's not possible. Verse 21, you can almost feel him. Uh, he's just pouring his heart out here. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and, and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Uh, invitations would go out to come to the pagan temple. And an invitation to a pagan temple would read as an invitation from a pagan god to a table with a meal. So Zeus invites you to come to the temple, etc., etc. So Paul is using this analogy to suggest that we must choose which table, which small g god or large g god we're going to be committed to. It has to be one or the other. We can't serve both. You know, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, among other things in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Now, literally, that reads, literally, no one can be a slave to two owners. He was just stating a fact. And if you try to do that, either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says you cannot serve both God and money. Now, it says money in our... English language, and that's a good translation, uh, but the, the, the word really is mammon. And yes, they had money in that day, but the average person didn't really have any money. They had farms, they had cattle, they had crops, they traded everything this way. And so mammon was everything that they owned and controlled. So you have to choose whether you're going to serve God or all the other things that you have. And so when we participate in the communion service, we're saying that Jesus is Lord, not me. My life is not my own. It has been purchased by God. And there's some verses for that, and we've already studied them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know, meaning you know this, don't you, that your body, this body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price, the cross. That's the... That's the cross. That's the resurrection. Therefore, honor God with your body. I like what Oswald Chambers says in his devotional. Uh, Beware of refusing to go to the funeral of your own independence. That's a great statement. Beware of refusing to go to the funeral of your own independence. And now Paul, he's probably almost shouting now. Verse 22. Are we trying to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than God? Paul is saying, do you not fear God? God is love, yes, but God also is a jealous God, a holy God, and he'll discipline us 
if we're not faithful to him. He's our father, and as any good father would do, if he truly loves a son or daughter, and they're going in the wrong direction, God will discipline us if we're going in the wrong direction. So now Paul returns to the thinking of chapter 8. So we're coming to the end. Now about food, sacrifice to idols, he says back in chapter 8. And that's what it was all about, and that's why I was so really nervous about that first sermon. And uh, the Corinthians thought that under grace there was nothing they couldn't do. So Paul uses their saying against them. Remember I said that there was a saying? So Paul now quotes them, verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say. That's your saying. But not everything is beneficial. And then he quotes them again. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Not everything edifies. Not everything builds up. Not everything strengthens. And then, verse 24, no one should seek their own good only, but the good of others. Wow. The book of Philippians really handles that one. Now, we start it this way. Christians are free. We are free. Free to serve others rather than to look out for ourselves. And, and, and it really works because uh, we're like that puzzle I talk about all the time. We all have different gifts. Nobody has one gift. There's no, no one. Like, there's no, there's no one gift that everybody has. We all have different gifts, and they're all necessary as God brings us together so that we come together encouraging one another, strengthening one another, praying for one another, uh, all of those various things. And so we're free to care more about others than ourselves because that means that we'll receive more from others even more than we probably need. So here's what Paul says. He's trying to be very practical here, and it's a little confusing. I hope I can make it, I can unconfuse it. Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. That's pretty obvious. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. There's nothing wrong with anything that's there. That's a quote from Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This was a Jewish blessing at mealtimes. And then he, he sets up a scenario that was common. If a non-believer invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. I've had that experience even in different parts of the world. I didn't even know what I was eating. <laughs> it didn't matter because it's all God's anyhow, even the ones that made me sick. <laughs> but if someone says to you, now, who's the someone? That's the real question, and they, there's page after page written about this. Well, it could be one or two people. It could be a Christian walking by in that society where the houses are all open, sees you in there, and sees that there's meat being served, and he walks up and he says, that, meat's, that meat was dedicated to an idol. Or, more likely, in my mind, it could have just be somebody that's at the meal that knows all about Christians, is not a Christian, and is watching you to see what you will do, and to sort of test you a bit, the person says, do you know that that was dedicated to, the, uh, to, a, a, uh, to a sacrifice? It was offered as a sacrifice. So what do you do? So here's what he says. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go and eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience, eat it. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Just set it aside, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Now, this is really important. And Paul says, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. You could eat it. It wouldn't hurt you. 
But I'm saying that you should care about that other person's conscience. If that unbeliever is testing you, maybe it'll be a chance to witness to that unbeliever. If the other person off the street, if that was the one and they're a believer and they come in, they're, they're a weak Christian, it might make them stumble. So you care more about them than yourself. And then some in Corinth were saying, I talked about this last week briefly, that Paul ate meat sacrificed to idols, and they were using that against him and talking about times that he had gone and eaten meat that was sacrificed to idols, or at least it was uh, the people were people that go to the temple. And so Paul says, if I take part in the meal, if I do this when I am uh, with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? If you thank God for it, eat it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. That's caring more about others. Whether they're Jews, whether they're Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, Paul says, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Bottom line, Paul cares more about others than himself. Specifically, he had a passion to make sure everyone had the opportunity to hear and see the gospel in action. The last verse, which is the first verse of chapter 11, follow my example. We did a whole sermon on this recently. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So how do we do this? Well, by caring more for our Christian community than for ourselves. Oh, but wait a minute. We're not to abandon our friends in the world. We're to be among them as clear followers of Jesus. Some of them may abandon us. That certainly happened to me, but we won't abandon them. I like what Ray Stebman said in a sermon on the subject. Keep your commitment to the Lord Jesus at a white-hot pitch, and then you're safe out in the world. Paul was often invited by non-believers to the parties. Jesus was criticized for going to parties. Why were they invited? Because they lived God-centered lives full of joy and people wanted to be around them. Jesus said to those who wanted to follow them that they were to be salt and light. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the salt of the world. What's salt done for? What, what, what will salt do for you? It makes food taste better. It also causes you to be thirsty. And then he said, you're the light of the world. This is a great picture. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, but no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. That'd be kind of dumb. Instead, they put it on its stand that gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Therefore, we're to live for the glory of God, making others thirsty for God, living in such a way that others can see the light of God in us. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you will help us to understand how important it is First, that we pay a lot of attention to those who came before us, to those in the Old Testament, and see the terrible errors that they made so that we won't make them. And secondly, Father, because we come together like we're here now, learning what the Apostle Paul and others said and taught us how to live our lives in such a way in community uh, with each other and in the communities that we live in other than the church, that it makes others want to be like us, thirsty for God and shining the 
light of his glory through our lives. And so, Father, especially as those this afternoon that may go out house to house, I pray that that's what the people see when they knock on the door and ask if they would like prayer or something like that, and and they see people that really care more about them than themselves. Help us to be that way where we work, where we play, uh, in all of the different places where we go to school, uh, where we exercise, all of these places, uh, so that people can see what Jesus looks like through our lives. Thank you that we're never going to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And thank you for being our faithful God. And I pray for anyone that's here this morning that they don't know Jesus yet. This is your opportunity to just simply turn to Jesus. He's being held up in front of you like the snake in the air uh, in Moses' day. And if you'll believe in him, you'll have eternal life and you'll know you're going to heaven, and you'll be able to live a life that is better than anything you would have ever planned otherwise. So, Father, help us to truly be in koinonia with one another and with our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us on that cross and rose from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.